Hey, 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 good morning, you guys. Good morning. Uh, hope you're doing awesome and um, staying healthy and safe and those babies are growing and oh, it's so fun being a grandparent these days. Uh, lots of fun, lots of fun, especially this time of the year. It's the holiday season and that's always fun, a fun time to get to see family and eat good food and uh, just people uh, tend to be, for the most part, in a better mood. Uh, especially those who uh, see Christmas as a time where God gave us his only son. So for most of the population who have that faith or understanding, you know, it's, it's a good time of the year. And um, we started this new series. It's called Our, Our God of Wonders. And uh, our God truly is a God of wonder. Just in the birth of Jesus is a huge wonder. And we're going to get to that at some point. But um, we're talking about our God of wonders, and, and what I hope to do in this series is three things. One is to proclaim the greatness of God so that we could just see it. We could just go, man, look at God. He's awesome. Secondly, that we would be encouraged. We would be encouraged as we live in this world on this mission field we call Earth. As we go about our days and we live our lives and we raise our families and our grandkids, remembering the bigger picture, remembering there's something greater. Heaven and hell are real and that we're preparing now for heaven. We want to be in heaven with our family. That's what we want. We want people to know it. We want to be encouraged by God's greatness and his wonder. And the third thing is that we would be impacted, that we would be impacted greatly and that we would go out and make an impact on the world around us. So we're talking about our God of wonders, our God of wonders. And Psalm 86 says this, for you are great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. He is. There is none other like him. Nobody compares to our God. The God who we serve, the God that we love, the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham and Moses and Jacob and, and uh and Joshua and, and all of the Bible people that we know about and we read about and we study about. This is the God of all creation. He's not just some God out there. He is God. He is God. And we are talking about the wonder of God in two places. First of all, the wonder of God in the world. The wonder of God. We go out and travel around. If you travel and you get to see, we get to see the wonder of God in our world. And uh, it's an amazing thing. We see the wonder of God in, in water displays all around the world. Canals and rivers and oceans and beautiful aqua-colored waters in the Caribbean and, and in other uh, tropical places. It's gorgeous. We see it and we go, man, that is so inviting. It's so awesome. It's so powerful. It's so good. But one of the most natural, most powerful natural wonders uh, is, uh, as far as a water display goes, is Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls up there in my old stomping grounds, probably getting snowed on right now. It's a natural wonder of God. And uh, Niagara Falls is up here between these two lakes, up there uh, on, in New York. And it is a, um, a powerful, powerful sight to see. 
to go to Niagara Falls. It's, it's just kind of amazing. It, let me just tell you a little bit about Ni uh, Niagara Falls. First of all, it is 188 foot tall in its tallest place. It, it is not the tallest falls in the world. There are hundreds of other falls around the world that are taller than Niagara Falls. But none of them have the capacity of water that Niagara Falls does. Lots, most, in fact, most of the, the taller ones just have one little river or stream flowing over its edge, its bank. Niagara Falls is not the tallest, but it pushes the most water. It pushes six million cubic feet of water over the edge every minute. Six million cubic feet. That is 700,000 gallons per second go over the edge of the falls every second. 700,000 gallons of water go over the edge of the falls. There's actually three falls on the, there's two on the American side, there's the American Falls, and then there's one called the Bridal Falls. And then on the Canadian side, we know Horseshoe Falls is the probably the most famous falls that everybody likes to look at and is the bigger part of the falls. The river or falls connects uh, two great lakes, two great lakes, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, and it also serves as the border of our country between us and Canada. Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls Rapids above the falls flows at approximately 25 miles per hour, up to 68 miles per hour in some of the faster rapids. If you were to compare that, 25 miles per hour, because thinking about 25 miles per hour, doesn't seem, if you're in a car, it doesn't seem like you're going very fast. But in human terms, it's pretty fast. Um, a fast human being could run about 20 miles an hour if you're, if you're fairly athletic and you can run. Uh, in the NFL, they have clocked runners and how fast they go. Isaiah McKenzie of the Buffalo Bills runs his, he's topped out his speed in a game with equipment on at 20.5 miles per hour. Uh, Isaiah uh, McKenzie of the Buffalo Bills. Also, Hussein Bolt, the fastest man to ever run that we are aware of, run, ran uh, his T-tops out at 27.5 miles per hour. 27.5 miles per hour. Let me show you real quick, if I can, I want to show you a video of, uh, of a runner here. See if I can get it up here. Get this up here. This is DK Metcalf of the Seattle Seahawks. Check out this play. Amazing play. Uh, Seattle's going to throw an interception. Come on. He's going to throw an interception. It's picked off. And this dude is going to take it to the house, or so he thinks. But watch Metcalf. This is DK Metcalf. He catches him, takes him down at about the five-yard line. And DK Metcalf in that, they say, topped out at a speed of 22, 22.64 miles per hour. DK Metcalf. DK Metcalf, 20, uh, 22.64 miles per hour. And that was, uh, and that was,
the full length of the field. He, he, he turned on the Jets and he caught up to that guy and he took him down at 22.64 miles per hour. That's how fast human beings can run, right? A horse, like if you go to the horse races, horses top out at about 44 miles per hour. A horse, if you've been to a horse race, they go flying by you, 44 miles per hour. The river, this river, Niagara River, at the top of it, it runs fast, and at the bottom, it runs faster, it runs faster than any NFL player ever. The only person who runs faster is Hussein Bolt, and he is lightning. He is lightning speed. Below the falls is the Great Gorge in a rapids and a whirlpool for about a mile. The whirlpool creates this kind of like reversal, uh, reversal phenomenon where it, it moves counterclockwise and they call it a vortex. And it's a powerful thing down here at the bottom of the falls where it takes a sharp turn and goes uh, down river towards um, Ontario, Lake Ontario. Um, there have been some crazy things happen at the falls uh, that many of us know about. A guy by the, Nico, uh, by the name of Nicholas, Nicholas, not Copernicus, but Nicholas Walenda, uh, typewrote, others have to, typewrote over the falls. That's a little insane, but notice he is tethered in, so he's basically cheating, but crazy things happen. This little old lady, Annie Edson, Taylor in 1901, check this out, 19, this little old lady, 63 years old, gets in a barrel, five foot tall, three foot wide, and she, she's a school teacher, retired, she goes over the fall, she wanted to become popular, famous, she wanted to give it one last shot to be remembered, and so she goes over the falls in 1901 in a barrel, check this out, it says this, she, she says this, she was not violently from side to side by the rapids and then propelled over the edge of Horseshoe Falls. Uh, she, she reached the shoreline in about 20 minutes. The, the, the whole total trip from going over the falls to going down under to popping back up and to floating over to the shoreline, 20 minutes it took for her journey. That, that doesn't seem long, but that's 20 minutes of probably close to hell in a barrel being pulverized and beaten. Taylor's fame, she wanted to become famous, she wanted to become rich, never happened. Even though we kind of remember her, she, she never, it never took off for her. But she did inspire others to go over the falls. And between 1901 and 1995, 15 people went over the falls, 10 of them, on purpose, this is on purpose, 10 of them survived it, but among those who died were a guy by the name of Jesse Sharp. He took the plunge in a kayak. That's delusional. Another guy, Robert Overcracker, he drove off the falls in a jet ski. Uh, then there's, there's this guy, his name is Bobby, Bobby Leach. Bobby Leach's story is, <laughs> is hilarious. Bobby Leach goes over the falls, others did too, but Bobby Leach goes over the falls in a, in a steel barrel, a metal one, a steel one. In his trip, he breaks both kneecaps. He breaks his jaw, but he survives. He survives going over Niagara Falls. But later on in New Zealand, Bobby slipped on an orange peel 
and he died of complications uh, due to gangrene. That, that is bizarre, right? That is bizarre. He survives Niagara Falls and he dies on an orange peel. Uh, that's kind of crazy. Crazy things happen at the falls. Uh, in the winter, the falls looks incredibly amazing. Uh, and, and when the lights are on the falls, it is a sight to see. If you, uh, if you go there in the summer, you could take a ride on the Maid in the Mist down under the falls. It will take you down in there. Uh, that's a fun trip to go on. You should do it sometime. If you haven't done that, do it. But what a, what a, when this is from water level, what a, a powerful sight to see. All that water just pounding over the edge. And one more picture for you about Niagara Falls. This is on the Canadian side, a hotel in Canada. This is a comparison, it's a casino. It's a comparison of the hotel in the falls. It doesn't really look like this. It's not necessarily at this point. But compared to the falls, as you look out the back window of the, the hotel, you can see the falls. It isn't exactly like this. But you can see the, the magnitude of Niagara Falls. Powerful wonder of God. Powerful wonder of God. Niagara Falls is a powerful display of water flow. In fact, Niagara Falls generates, generates enough electricity to power a fourth of New York's New York State, maybe more by now, and all of Ontario, Canada, are powered by Niagara Falls. This this falls brings electricity to that many many homes. Our God of Wonders is is not only creative, like beautifully creative, naturally, just natural. God did this. Man did not do this. God did this. He's not only creative and powerful, but he is, he is a wonder. And what he does is a wonder. And we see the wonder of God in creation. We see the wonder of God in the world. When we look around, we look at things like this and we go, man, God is, God is a God of wonders. And this is just one of so many. Secondly, we see the wonder of God in the word. We see the wonder of God when we look into the word of God. We're talking about water. And Jesus said that he is living water. I am living water. And if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John, two separate chapters. But John chapter 4. And uh, Jesus goes to Samaria. Okay, he goes to Samaria. And uh He's, he goes to, uh, he comes to Samaria and, he, and he, takes, he takes a seat at a well and he sends the disciples into town at Sychar to go and get some food. And while he's sitting at Jacob's well, a woman comes up to the well to draw water. And the interesting thing here is Jesus speaks to the woman and that, that isn't supposed to happen. Um, first of all, back in that culture, Men weren't really supposed to speak to women. Jews were not supposed to speak to Samaritans. And they definitely were not supposed to speak to a woman. And what Jesus says to the woman as she comes up to the well to draw water is he says to her, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? He asks her a simple question. Will you give me 
a drink. And the woman says to him, say what? Like, you aren't supposed to be speaking to me. Nobody does that. Nobody speaks to me. I'm a woman and you're a man. That's not supposed to happen. Check out the passage. And so the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. So there's this little encounter between Jesus and this woman that doesn't typically happen, never supposed to happen, but it happens. The disciples are gone and Jesus is going to take advantage of the opportunity to speak to this woman. And what Jesus is doing is he is setting the stage. He is testing her waters. He is testing her waters. He's trying to see or bring out of her some information, some truth, and a, and a, and a connection. She's there. Check this out. This woman is there exactly on time. Uh, she is, she, the disciples have left and now she has come and it seems to be just her and Jesus. And, and she is the perfect person for what God wants to do in carrying out a plan. God knows, God draws, God puts her there with Jesus. And she is not just any individual. She has been handpicked by God to be there at this very moment. That is so cool. And I, I, that is amazing when God does things like that. When he puts the right person in the right place at the right time. And you know, this is God. You just know this is the work of God. Because there's no way in the world this would ever happen any other way. It's not coincidence and it's not luck. This is God. And so God has a mission for her. She doesn't know this yet. Uh, in her mind, she just came to, to, to draw some water, right? To take back to her family, to take back to her home, maybe do some cooking, some cleaning. But this, no, this is no accident. God has arranged this encounter, and this encounter has a purpose. It has a very important purpose. And Jesus now raises her curiosity, and she is going to engage. She's going to engage with Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus asked her for a drink of water, and the woman says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his, lives, and, and, and his livestock? And so Jesus says, if you would have asked me, I would give you water, living water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw from. How are you going to get water from this well? And so Jesus now has brought her into a conversation. She is now engaging in this conversation and she is now curious about who Jesus is. She is a smart woman. She knows some things. She knows where the well came from. And she knows that, that Jacob is the one who provided this well for her people. And so Jesus then responds to her 
her statement and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw. Two very different kinds of water in both of their minds. This woman, in her mind, has stuck on the physical water and Jacob's well and why she came there. And she now is hopeful that there may be a way for her to have this water without having to come to the well, save her some time and some work and some effort. But Jesus, he has a totally different kind of water in mind altogether. It isn't the well from Jacob's well. It is water from Jacob's well. Uh, and uh, basically Jesus is saying, you drink, if you drink your water, you will be coming back here all the time. It will never quench your thirst. But if you drink the water that I have for you, you will never thirst again. And what Jesus is going to do is what Jesus kind of always does. It's his way of teaching. It's his way of bringing people in to the conversation to get them to engage, to get them to think. And then he starts with very physical things and he leads them to a spiritual truth, which is what he is going to do with this woman. And it makes perfect sense how he does it. He's going to show her that by his authority to do the physical thing, that he also has authority to do a spiritual wonder as well. And he's going to show her that by his authority and his power and his knowledge, that he knows her even though they have never met before. He's going to show her her. And she's going to realize that he is more than just another guy at the well. He is going to give her a taste of his godhood and his power. The power that sets him apart from every other person on the planet. And she's going to get a first-hand look at that. He's going to do this just like he does in other instances in the Bible. Let me, let me name a few. Remember Nathaniel. When Jesus met Nathaniel, he said, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. That was a, 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 a moment of, what? You saw me under the fig tree? I didn't see you. Jesus knew Nathaniel because he saw Nathaniel, even though Nathaniel never saw him. Like Jesus did with the crippled man, the crippled man that was lowered in through the roof. Remember, Jesus said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And so Jesus is basically showing that by his authority and power to heal the man physically, he also then has the power and the authority to forgive sin. But for us as human beings, we've got to see it to believe it. And so Jesus does the physical thing for us, the easy thing, the, the, the lesser thing, the thing that we would think would be amazing. He healed a crippled guy, but Jesus does that just to show the people that he has this power, therefore he also has this power. And the one shows 
the other, like he did with Peter after the miraculous catch of fish. And he turned and he said to Peter from now on, you will be a fisher of men. You will catch fish. And like he did when he fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves of, and, a, and a few fish. And later on, Jesus said, when they came back looking for more food, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You're coming to follow me to get another meal, but I'm not here about the meals. It's not about the food. It's about something deeper, something greater, something spiritual. I am the bread of life. And so Jesus does these physical things to point to his spiritual power and ability, a demonstration of his physical power to confirm and to verify and to solidify his spiritual authority and power and ability. And he says to the woman, he says to the woman, go after this, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to come here and get thirsty and have to keep coming here and draw water. Jesus says to the woman, changes the subject totally. He says to the woman, go and call your husband. And this is going to be a very loaded question. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come on back. And the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are absolutely right in saying you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And the woman is now beginning to realize that Jesus is someone special. She's beginning to see that he is more than just a man. He's some kind of prophet. He is some kind of rabbi. He is some kind of teacher. There's something about Jesus that she's beginning to realize, and they must have a conversation that goes on for a little while in light of this and in light of what she says in a little while. But they must have this conversation where Jesus tells her more and more about her life. And he says, go call her your husband. And she inquires then because she believes that he is some kind of prophet or rabbi or Jewish authority, she, she brings up another topic, and it's the topic of worship. And in verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So apparently this is a pressing issue among her little town in the big city of Jerusalem, not far from there, right? So there's this debate that's probably been going on for a long time over where the place of worship should be. And she is perceiving Jesus to be a prophet. And so she asks him about worship. And Jesus says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem at all. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus, Jesus points her 
to another spiritual truth, and that is about worship. That worship is about what happens on the inside, not on where you are, where you're sitting, where you're standing, what you're wearing, the kind of music you're playing. None of that really matters. Jesus is revealing to her that, that, that there's something deeper about worship. There's something greater about worship. There's something more spiritual about worship and water that goes beyond the physical. It's not about the location. It's about a spiritual truth that is happening between God and a person. Just like water is not about physical water at Jacob's well. It's about a spiritual truth and power from God to a human being that God wants to give to us. It's spiritual. And she reveals then that she is waiting. She's, she's a smart woman. She's waiting and they're all waiting. And look what she says. The woman said, I know that Messiah, who is called to Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he, I am he. That is insane. Jesus is like, Jesus is like, she is finally like arrived where Jesus wanted to go. Like the conversation started with a question, right? Give me, can you give, will you give me a drink of water? And now they have arrived at her inquiring about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus reveals to her that I am him. See, she's, she's moving through this process. First, he's just a guy at the well as she walks up. Now he asks her a question, and she can see as they begin to talk that he's more than just a guy. He is a Jew. He's a man. He's a prophet. And now she's wondering, could this actually be the one we've been waiting for? The one that all of us have been hoping and praying, God, send your Messiah. And Jesus is like, we finally have arrived. And she's finally realizing that Jesus, this guy, may very well be the Messiah and the Christ and the living water. The one who is greater than Jacob's well. The one who is greater than all things. In verse 27 uh, the disciples return back and they see Jesus talking to this woman, but nobody says anything to Jesus about it. And so the woman now bolts out of there. She's gone. The disciples are back. This has gotten uncomfortable. She is gone. She is, though, extremely, extremely excited. She is so excited. What has just happened between her and Jesus is big for her. It is huge, so big. It's so big. It's so big that she runs off, leaving her water jar, and she goes back to the town, and she says to the people, could you imagine her going back there and just saying, hey, you guys, guess what just happened to me at the well? Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. That's why I believe the conversation went on for a little while, more than what we have. This man who told me everything I ever did, could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they begin to make their way to where Jesus is, to Jacob's well. Well, the disciples are back. And in verses 31 to 38, before the crowd reaches the well, Jesus shares some information 
up to the disciples. He, he talks about himself being the water of life. He talks about his work as water, as uh, uh, sowing and reaping and harvesting and all those things. Look what Jesus says. Meanwhile, his disciples urged Jesus, in case she leaves, heads back to town. They're making their way out. And the disciples are urging Jesus to eat something, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Something greater, something deeper, something spiritual. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now the harvester, or the har he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper uh, may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples in the meantime before the crowd arrives and he's saying to them look you guys i've been planting seed in this woman here over the last hour or two hours whatever it's been and now look at the the crowd of people look at the harvest coming our way look at the people that are going to the souls that Jesus is now going to have the opportunity to talk to, and they're all going to have the opportunity to share with as they have an opportunity to minister to this group of people that's coming out their way. And so this is an amazing engagement uh, of Jesus and the woman who now goes home and the Jesus and his disciples preparing them. And then in verse 39, check it out, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed with them for a couple more days. This whole thing started with the question, will you give me a drink of water? And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, get this, we, do, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Isn't that incredible? We believe because of what we have heard. Her engagement, her engagement with the water of life. Her engagement at the well with Jesus, right? Started with a simple question, will you give me a drink of water? And she went ahead and engaged with Jesus. She didn't run off. She didn't get shy. She didn't ignore him. She engaged with Jesus. And it leads to many, many, many in her town believing, believing in Jesus. And the same should be true of us. When we come to Jesus, when the living water flows in our life, other people should be blessed and other people should come to know Jesus as well. Living water, living water. In, in, in verse 10 of, of this section, 
Going back to that passage, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, Jesus, she didn't know that when she showed up, but she discovered that the more she met with Jesus and talked with Jesus, because Jesus is the holder and he is the source of living water. The wonder of living water is offered to us. The, the, the offer of living water is offered to anyone. We're all invited. All we have to do is ask. Just simply ask. Another passage, John chapter 7, a couple, uh, a couple verse, uh, pages over. Flip your Bibles. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And it is time for the Feast of Tabernacles, also called Sukkot, which means the Feast of Booths. Booths. It's a, it's a time to commemorate, easy for me to say, commemorate, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, living around the temple. They had a tent temple, a temporary one, one that could move. And they were living in huts and booths and shacks all around the temple, living out there in the wilderness for 40 years, a temporary home, living out there wandering in the wilderness. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was a time where for a week they would set up their tents outside their real homes and they would live in the tents to remember what their forefathers went through to commemorate this. The time in, um, well, that's a really bad picture. The time in Egypt, or yeah, in, in the wandering, when they lived in all these tents, these are tents outside the temple. Sorry about that picture, it doesn't look too good. But it's this celebration, it's this feast, among other feasts that the Jews celebrate. But this one is called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tents. And it is this massive, massive, massive uh, celebration and feast that if you were a true Israelite, you were to go to Jerusalem and you were to participate in this feast to celebrate the deliverance of the Lord the, and, the, and how their forefathers experienced God's mighty hand as he brought them out of Egypt and to the promised land. But for those years that they disbelieved, they would wander for 40 years. And so it's in John chapter 7, in verse 14, Jesus goes up to the feast, halfway through the feast. Uh, the disciples want to go when it starts. Jesus is like, my time has not yet come. You guys can go. I'm going to wait. And halfway through the feast, Jesus comes to the feast. And during John, 4, John 7, 14 and following, well, here's what happens. He does some teaching in the feast. Uh, there in John 7. He is confronted in John 7 by the leaders and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. Jesus is, is, is uh, um, he is accused of being demon-possessed uh, by them. And uh, there's a lot of differing views of who Jesus is. Different people saying different things about who he is. Confusion about who he is. Uh, they try to seize Jesus in John 7, verse 30, but they couldn't. For some reason, they just could not do it. And then in John 
uh, 7.31, the scripture says that many put their faith in Jesus. And so I'm just kind of summarizing what's going on here leading up to where I want to go. So now it's the last day of the feast, okay? Jesus has been there for the last half of it. It's the last day of the feast. And Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to proclaim in a loud, loud voice a truth. It's kind of like in Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 4, it, earlier in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus went into a synagogue, and he uh, was asked to come on up and read a scripture, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And, and here's what happened. Jesus gets up in front of the synagogue, all these people in this town, and Jesus gets the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and he unrolls it, and he found the place where it was written these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and all of the eyes of everyone on, in the synagogue are now fastened on him because when you sit down, you are sitting down after you read the scripture, you are in the, pre, the, you are in the preacher's seat and the preacher's chair is right there next to where the podium is, where you read the scroll from when you stand to read the scroll, and then you sit down to teach. Well, we don't know how many times Jesus had been in the synagogue. This may have been the very first time he's ever in the synagogue, and he stands up and he reads this scroll from Isaiah about the favor of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is on me, and he sits down and everyone is staring at Jesus, and then he began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, that got their attention. When Jesus said to them in that synagogue, Isaiah is writing about me. That, that's huge. That's a proclamation. That is big. Nobody dare ever dare say that that verse, that passage that Isaiah wrote thousands of years ago is about me. You just don't say that unless it is. You just don't say it. You're a loony bin if you say it. Well, here's what happens back at Tabernacles. It's the last day of the feast. And on the last and the greatest day, it's called the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the spirit had not been poured out or given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, makes perfect sense here. Perfect sense. Check this out. Here's what's happening. It's called the greatest day or the great day of the feast. And it's probably the eighth day of the feast. Tabernacles, we're back in tabernacles. Probably the eighth day, because they're, they're celebrating this 
in modern day Jesus time to commemorate what happened years and years ago. And it's the eighth day. This is the, the, the leave your booth day. This is the day that you pack it up and you go back home and the, and the festival is over. The feast is over. And it all commemorates the end of the wandering. So it's not just the feast is over and we all go home and la-ti-da. It is commemorated. The actual eighth day was to commemorate the end of the wandering period. This is insane. This is kind of cool. And so it's called the great day to commemorate the wandering in the wilderness. The feast now, tabernacles, has come to an end. And the priests, what the priests would do, would they, they would get water from the, the pool and they'd come walking into the temple as a parade, and they would begin to they'd go up to the altar where the fire was burning, and they would begin to pour water and wine on the fire, on the altar. They would pour on the altar jugs of water and wine on the fire to quench the fire, signifying that God has brought their wandering to an end. Remembering that God brought their wandering to the end and the fire now is being snuffed out and the wandering is no more. And now they will move. They will move on into the promised land and conquer it. That, that this eighth day was commemorating the day that God said, let's go. We're going to take over the land now. The 40 years is over. And the people at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when the priests are pouring this water and the wine on the fire to quench it, the people are yelling and they're screaming and they're singing and they're praising God because they know what this means. And the water, this water poured onto the fire shows the end of being misplaced. It shows the end of tent living in the wilderness, homelessness, the homelessness of God's people. It shows the end of 40 years of drought where God said, fine, have it your way. You want to rebel and not believe, then you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And this moment at the great feast is the moment when that has come now to an end. And on this great day, all of the people are gathered there. And the water is poured on the fire, signifying the next move of God. And on this great day, Jesus is going to stand up and shout in a loud voice. And he says to them, he says to them, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow within them. This is a powerful statement of Jesus about being the living water. And he says to them that, that he points to them at the end of this part, he points to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and that Pentecost one day will come when he leaves and that there will be a filling of the Holy Spirit that has not happened yet. But in verse 37, in verse 37, he reveals some truths. He says, anyone who is thirsty, anybody out there who is thirsty, whoever believes, any race, any color, any nation, any tribe, any soul, anyone at all, anyone, Anyone that is thirsty. 
and he invites us all. He invites us to come to Jesus, to come to him and to drink. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus and drink from the fountain of God. The living water is available for your soul, for your human soul on this earth. Of all the craziness that we go through in this world, of all the chaoticness of this world, of all the confusion and all of the, the noise of the world, Jesus, the living water, is available to you and to me, to anyone who believes, to anyone who comes to him. And he says, whoever believes in me, not only will you be full of this water, but rivers of living water will flow through you. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he said this, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This, this, this powerful flow of, of water will flow in you. See, this is an imparting thing. It's a filling thing. It's a flowing thing, right? It's, it's a transforming truth. By this water, you will be changed. By this water, you will be satisfied. Your thirst will be quenched. As you tap into the living water of Jesus, you will be filled and you will flow with this living water. This is yet another wonder of God in the word of God. The living water of Jesus wants to burst through and in you. Like the old song that we sang at camp said, spring up a well, goosh, 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 goosh. Spring up, oh well. That's what God wants to do in us. Spring up, oh well. Let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. Well, here's the thing. Here's the truth about the water of Jesus and we're done. Four quick little things. First of all, this. The living water of Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you give your life to Christ, you surrender to him, you dive into the living water of Jesus, here's what's going to happen. It will make you do crazy things for God. Okay, It will just make you do crazy things for God. Good crazy, not, not crazy crazy. Not psycho crazy, not mental things, but, but, but wild things and crazy things and amazing things for Jesus. Remember Niagara Falls caused people to do some crazy, crazy things. Some of them swam in it. Some of them jumped over it, over it with a kayak, with a jet ski. Some climb around it, some type rope over it. But when you wade into the river of God, when you come into the current of God's water, it will light you up and it will send you accelerating because his rapids are so fast, so very, very fast. You will sing, you will dance, you will serve, you will share, and you will go places where you never dreamed you would go. You would say things that you never thought you would say, and you will do things that you never dreamed that you would do. Because when you jump into the water, it will make you do crazy things. Secondly, the living water, it generates lots and lots of power. See, the falls provides power and electricity for thousands and thousands of homes in New York and in Canada. But when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and his call to come to him and you surrender your life to the Son of God, the, the river of life, the water of life, the power in you is incredible. 
Simply electrifying power. And it will change you in great ways and for the good if we will allow it to, if we will let it to. Number three, jumping into the water is risky business. It's risky business. Between 1850 and 2011, get this straight, between 1850 and 2011, 5,000 bodies have been found at the foot of the falls. Lots of people have died in the falls. An average of 20 to 30 people die each year. Most of them are suicide on the horseshoe side of the falls ending their lives in the power of the waterfalls. When we arrive, when we arrive, when we arrive at heaven's gates, we can ask Peter, we can ask Paul, we can ask the apostles, we can ask the prophets, we can ask all those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, and we can ask Jesus, what kind of risk was it to follow God on the earth? Just what kind of risk was it for you to follow God on the earth? because every one of them gave their life for the cause of Christ. We are called to follow the one who said, take up your cross and get in line. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a dangerous object. It's risky business. It is not for the weak. It is not for the fearful. It is not for those who love themselves too much. And finally, diving into the, the Jesus water will be the ride of your life. It will be the ride of your life. You better just hold on tight. You better buckle in, man, because it will be the ride of your life. If you think, that jumping in a barrel and going over the falls would be exhilarating and crazy, then the rush of Jesus and following him will blow that away. Following Christ blows away any earthly thing that you could ever do. Whether it's going over the falls, bungee jumping, skydiving, it doesn't matter. Following Jesus Taking up your cross and following Christ will be the most exhilarating thing you will ever do. Tuning into his word, striving to live out Christ like this in this world will be crazier than anything you could ever do. Seeking his will for your life and finding your place in his kingdom work. Going where he sends you. Teaching your kids to follow him. Honoring a holy God in a dark evil, rebellious world, striving to share the good news of Jesus with lost souls, the greatest work on earth. It's not just the greatest work on earth, it is the greatest challenge on earth, and it will be the ride of your life, the ride of your life. The wonder of God in the world is seen in the power of the water in Niagara Falls. But the power, but the wonder of God in the word is seen in Jesus, the living water, the living water. In him, you will never thirst again. If you haven't already, like the old hymn says, plunge in today and be made complete. God bless you guys. Have an amazing week. And 
find your place in the flow of Jesus, the living water.